Welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So next week's sequel has us back in the genre of horror with Psycho Cop Returns. And I was lucky enough to interview the star, Officer Joe Vickers himself, Robert Schaefer. He delivers some epic one-liners in that movie. He talks about a possible third movie and how Rob was so integral in the making of the first one. It's a story you have to hear to believe. And, of course, we talked about Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. In his epic role on The Office, how he went from West Virginia to Hollywood, his love of theater. And one thing I loved about Rob was talking about old Hollywood, his love of Burt Reynolds, The Duke. We talked about Charles Bronson, Marlon Brando, and lots more. And then right at the top of the interview, we talked about a movie that he got made a few years back called Dick Dixter. Man, the role that he plays as the perfect Hollywood sleazebag, it's just so funny. I love the movie. I'll put a link where you can find it and rent it or buy it online. Uh, I watched it on Prime. It was just so much fun. Rob's a great guy. You're going to love his Hollywood stories. He just wanted to keep telling and I just wanted to keep listening. So I'm going to shut my yapper. And without further ado, here's actor Robert Schaefer. Awesome, man. This is uh, pretty cool to talk to you. So thanks so much for taking the time. Sure, Doug. My pleasure. Awesome, man. <laughs> so I, I finished uh, Dick Dixter today. So usually I start at the beginning of folks' career. But I want to talk about, obviously, of other things that have come out since that. But uh, what was the inspiration for that? Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> well, I think if you, uh, it's pretty much a summation of 40 years in Hollywood is the inspiration. The original inspiration is a movie starring Peter O'Toole called The Stuntman. It's from 1980. And he plays this diabolical director in it. I mean, he, he's Peter O'Toole. So... You know, that that part always appealed to me. And then uh, not too long ago, I did a, a commercial with, what's his name? The uh, David O. Russell. <laughs> David O. Russell. <laughs> so everybody was all scared of David O. Russell because he's kind of a monster, right? So that dynamic was very interesting to me. And then I wanted to uh, just do a summation, really, on the phenomenon in Hollywood where losers think that they're winners. <laughs> and they and they, they talk that way, they act that way. I mean, Dick, you know, goes around, he, he's a winner. He is. <laughs> and he wins at the end of the movie, doesn't he? I know. I know. My favorite part was is even at the end when he's tied down and you think this guy can meet his demise and for like a split second you're thinking, you know what, this guy's gonna be human. No, not at all. He just reverts oh, back no. to himself. It's great. Thank you. Cool, man. So how did you uh, is this the first thing you've ever written or have you written other scripts over the years? Oh no, no. I've written tons of stuff. You know, I, I started out writing documentaries for uh, A&E. Really? Yeah, I wrote the 50th anniversary of D-Day for A&E, and it, which was quite an honor, I must confess. And, you know, those guys, I did a lot of research on D-Day, obviously, which is one of the 
singular greatest achievement in our lifetime. Oh, yeah. So it was funny because the people from A&E, you know, they all flew out here from New York and they we had this big story conference. And, and one of the executives said to me, uh, Bobby, do you think you can come up with something new? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, something new? <laughs> It's D-Day. It's it's history. I, you know, what what I can come up with is the way that I arrange the facts. I mean, that'll be new. But I, I, I I can't come up with anything new. (laughs) (laughs) So was that like your first passion, writing, or was it acting first? Well, acting is always my first passion, but acting and writing are so uh, intertwined. They're they're the same thing. Is it has to do with the love of the language and you have to really acting and, and, and writing are both all about reading. Uh, you know, the more you read, the, the more fluent you are with the language, the better you are able to emote it and convey it, you know, whether it's on the page or whether it's on the screen. So what was it like casting? Cause you cast it for disc. What was it like being on the other side of that audition process? Uh, well, that's, I've done that before. It's oh, you not have? New. I have. Um, it's, uh, it's always interesting because for one, uh, actors are saying your words, which, <laughs> you know, is a thrill Yeah. When, when they bother to do them correctly, that is, um, <laughs> or take the time to learn them the way that you wrote them. I'm convinced that a lot of young actors are dyslexic. I, you know, they, they approximate language, you know, Sam Shepard, who is a great actor writer in one of his plays, true West, which is, uh, I had the privilege of doing, he has an author's note at the very beginning of it. And he says, don't change anything. <laughs> Do it exactly the way it's written. Yeah. So that means that you honor the commas and the parentheses and, the, you know, the ellipses and the period. <laughs> now, Christopher Walken doesn't do any of those things, right? <laughs> when he gets a script, the first thing that he does is he gets rid of all stage directions and all punctuation. <laughs> That's true. He, he doesn't do punctuation, you know. But as a rule, I, my advice to young actors is to do it exactly the way it's written. You should always assume that the writer is in the room and the writer wants to hear what he wrote not what you are faking your way (laughs) into doing. You you need to be, this game is about precision, right? It's like golf. Golf is about precision. Who strikes it best? Who is more precise? So the same thing applies here. I mean, not, you know, (laughs) there is some craft involved. So here, one thing that I like to do, and I wanted to talk about Dick Dister because you were kind enough to send it to me. So, uh, so I always like to talk about folks, the way they like grew up and how everything started. So, so where does your story begin? Where'd you grow up? Well, I'm, I'm a West Virginian originally. Oh, nice. Not too far from me. I'm in Jersey. Is that where you live now or where yeah, you're from? That's where I grew up. I moved to Oregon for a couple of years, but me and my wife moved back. You know, they always pull you back in, you know? Are you back in Jersey? Yep, yep. <laughs> I have a bunch of friends that are from Jersey. They're, oh, cool. they're good guys. Good guys. I'm a West Virginia guy. I moved away, though, when I was uh, 11. I lived in Maryland and Michigan and Florida. 
And um, then I came out to Hollywood in 1980, and I've been grinding away ever since. Wow. When did you get the bug? Like, what was it? Watching it on TV, or did you do a play, and you just got that? You got hooked? No, I uh, I fell in love with an actress. Um, <laughs> and she was uh, she was really good. And so she encouraged me, you know, you can do this. And so I, I went, and I was watching her on her sets, and I realized, hey, hey I can do this. And so then I went to school. I went to school for three years. I the best teacher in LA. I was fortunate enough to study with uh, Peggy Fury and you know Nick Cage and Sean Penn and Meg Ryan. Those were some of my classmates. Oh my God! Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a very competitive. Eric Stoltz. It goes on and on. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. It, it was very competitive, <laughs> and so you always had to bring your A game. And fortunately, I was, uh, when I was growing up, I was a basketball player. So I, I had the ability to concentrate because basketball requires some pretty fierce concentration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, like, it, it has the same theory about um, acting as well. It is that you know that people are watching you, but that you have to stay enclosed in your own space. Right? Oh, yeah. The basketball players, when when they're on the when, when you're on the foul line, <laughs> you know, and you need both of them, <laughs> and everybody's screaming, twenty thousand people are screaming. They know everybody's screaming, but they have to be able to see the ball going over the front of the rim. <laughs> you know, you can't be looking up in the crowd and, and, and taking the victory wave there. You you've got to pretty much be able to block that all out. <laughs> acting acting is the same thing. Yeah, it's crazy. The people you said that were in your acting class. Besides Michelle Pfeiffer, it's like all the people in Fast, not all the people that were in Fast Times at Richmond High, but three of them were in Fast Times. That's pretty wild. Yeah, that was a big, huge hit. I mean, that was amazing how big that movie was. So what was your first step in the journey? Obviously, on your IMDb, the first credit that's on here is the Rosebud Beach Hotel in 84 as Rodney. Was there something before that? Well, no, that, well, I did Highway to Heaven, I think. I did a TV oh, show. Oh, cool. I'm not sure. Those were about the same time. Those were um, both getting started. But, the, you know, Rosebud, uh, I was working with Christopher Lee. It's amazing. <laughs> Christopher Lee, Dracula. Dracula, I was standing next to Christopher Lee for my first <laughs> movie. And, and so that was intimidating. You know, I mean, plus the whole movie was uh, full of all these Fran Drescher was in this movie. All these great character actors were in this movie. It was, uh, you know, I think my first night, in fact, I know, <laughs> I did 18 takes. You know, I had to do 18 takes until everybody was happy. And the crew was getting surly, and, you know, it was brutal. <laughs> and I was, work- I was working with Colleen Camp. and she uh, was- I love her. And she was the kid girl. You know, she was off of, uh, of Apocalypse Now right then. And so uh, I was intimidated by her, and she has this really weird sort of cadence. <laughs> and, and so it took me 18 cases. So I was just crushed on the way home. You know, I was, everything <laughs> I thought I knew was, was destroyed, and all my confidence was gone. And I got home, and the director called me. His name was Harry Hurwitz, and he said, uh, Hey, listen, you, you did fine. Everyone has to lose their cherry in uh, one way or another, and I'll see you tomorrow, bright and early. So, you know. That must have been cool. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, you gotta, you know, you gotta get trashed. You, you don't, you're not perfect every time, you know. <laughs> if you don't have that happen, then you know when it does happen down the road, it's gonna hurt you even more. At least get, you know, kicked in the teeth like a comedian goes on stage. They're gonna bomb so many times before they even get right. a laugh for the most part. So that's good that you had that moment early, got it out of the way. <laughs> well, one of them anyway. <laughs> that's awesome. So then Highway to Heaven, and then a couple movies back-to-back. You were the role of commercial director, Hollywood Shuffle, which is a great movie. I, I love that movie. Well, it's, it's a classic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, uh, it stands the test of time, really. Uh, it's funny because when I talk about Dick Dixter, I say, you know, I, I learned the most valuable lesson in filmmaking from Robert Townsend 27 years ago. It only took me 27 years to go to the lesson was make your own movie. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I don't know why it took me so long to, to make it, but, you know, everything happens for a reason, uh, I believe, um, when it's time. Yeah. So the one movie, and it's such a classic for my childhood, because it seemed like there were so many movies that were kind of like this. There was Maniac Cop. I'm trying to think of another one. There was definitely another one besides. But anyway, you were Officer Joe Vickers, Psycho Cop. Were you like a fan of horror before this came about? Well, um, sure. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to sit up and watch Creature Feature on Friday yeah. night, you know, in the wee forbidden hours until one or two, and then, you know, the anthem play. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't an obsession or anything. And, um, Interestingly enough, the uh, way that I got that part was the audition was a Sam Shepard piece. And the one I was discussing, yeah, we did True West. (laughs) And so I knew it cold. I'd been working on it in my Peggy Fury class. I was too young for it then. Uh, And later I did, like I said, I got to play it in Pasadena where Shepard wrote it. I did the 20th anniversary of it. But... (laughs) So he, the director said, the uh, director's name is Wallace Potts, and Wallace said, uh, uh, Bobby, are you familiar with True West? And I, I just seen Mal- John Malkovich and Gary Sinise do it, which launched both of their careers. <laughs> Interestingly <laughs> enough, I just seen them. I mean, it was a few nights before. He said, are you familiar with that? I went, uh, yeah, a little. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't let on that I knew this thing. You know, I was ready to put it up on the stage. I mean, here we go. Let's action. That's the only thing you had to say to me on this thing was action. (laughs) I just nailed it. I mean, it wasn't even close. Because I could hear the other actors, and they're just butchering it. And Shepard is very precise. Like I said, you know, he he uses those commas and those pauses and everything is – he wants – if you do it the way that he wrote it, it's it's, uh, musical. Yeah. In other words, he – He's invested, he's searching for a rhythm in his language, as all good writers are. You know, if you adhere to that, you'll find that, and it's much easier to memorize and emote and all that. But uh, so, you know, I knew right away I had that part, and it took about three months for us to get it off the ground. And that included, um, <laughs> for horror fans, this is a good thing to know, the producer on... Um, Psycho Cop was Jessica Raines, the daughter of one Claude Raines, the great Claude Raines. Really? Yeah, the Invisible Man. I mean, Casablanca, that actor, that Claude Raines, the great Claude Raines. Anyway, his daughter produced it. 
So the, the producer said, you know, we're having trouble getting the money out of the executive producer. Maybe you should rent a costume and go over to his office and, you know, do what you can shake loose. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to make this movie. You know, I, I definitely want to make this movie. So I rent the costume. I go over there unannounced. I show up in Beverly Hills at, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. And he doesn't know I'm coming. <laughs> Here I am in an outfit, you know, the black leather, the boots, the whole bit. And he's like, ooh, ooh, you know, she's like, she's going to be like, uh, what are you doing here, mate? And I'm like, I just want to talk to you about the movie. <laughs> so I sit down, we talk. I'm acting tough. I'm acting psycho for about a half an hour. So finally, he, he looks at me and he goes, okay, we'll make it. So that was how I, I made it happen. Look at that. That's awesome. Yeah, it was. And it's, it really treated me well, you know, because after the first one, I went to the Cannes Film Festival, which was great, because I met a lot of people and I learned a lot about the movie business. Sure. You know, it, uh, we, we, we did make one more, you know, which turned out to be also high art and markedly, markedly different films. I think I can announce right here, right now, Doug, that I've written the script for Psycho Cop 3. Really? That's awesome, man. Hip-hop Psycho Cop. Hip-hop Psycho Cop? That's awesome. Crazy-ass cracker gonna shoot you if you smoke that rock. Bang, boom, he in the room. Got the nine out, blasting and he laughing too. Fuck you, boy and brew. That's amazing. How long ago did you write that? I finished it about a year ago. I finished it. Oh, nice. So we had a screening of Psycho Cop Returns a couple months ago here in Hollywood, a new screening room, and Adam Rifkin was there, the director of Psycho Cop Returns. And uh, he loves the script. He wants to do it. His producer uh, came running up to me after the screening and was like, oh, my God, we need to make Psycho Cop 3. Oh, that's what we should be making. And I'm like, funny you should mention that. <laughs> I happen to have the script. Well, let me get that over to you. That is so cool. So when you saw the, so the screening a few months ago, what was it like after all these years just watching people enjoy it? Well, it was great. It was actually the first time we'd ever seen it screen the way it was intended to be seen oh wow the director's cut on a big screen with a full house were frankly uh cinephiles this is hollywood after all yeah william lustig the director of maniac cop was also at the screening oh, okay yeah there was great i had a great moment with him before it started you know i said oh it was the first time i'd ever met him and i said you know bill uh, people have been coming up to me for the last 25 years, and they've been saying, who would win, Psycho Cop or Maniac Cop? And he goes, well, I said, you're looking at him. <laughs> awesome. Uh, it's too easy. <laughs> too easy. Oh, my God. How quick after the first one did they say, hey, we're going to do a second one? Because I know you got your producer on the second one. I was co-producer. Co-producer, okay. Well, what they did was originally when I signed, I signed a five picture deal for psycho cop. Yeah. 
I signed a five picture deal. And what it was was that they had laddered all the the incremental salary increases into it, right? So that way I wouldn't be able to hold them up if the thing was a hit. Yeah. They they weren't gonna let me renegotiate after every film. I mean every film had <laughs> its already had its price set. But I was I was so ecstatic. It was one point two million dollars. I was like, I've done it. I'm the next big horror villain. Uh, villain. I'm Freddy Krueger. I have one point two million dollar <laughs> contract. And then the distributors killed the film. The first one, they Maniac Pop and Psycho Cop was handled by the same distributor. Oh my god! <laughs> Maniac Cop was their was their love child. We were the we were the stepchild. So we got buckets out of them. So now we waited three years, then we started, and that contract was no longer in play, so I did negotiate for the next one. But that was Ripken, and Ripken, you know, he's wild. He has a, he's a he's true cinema verite genius, that guy. He's marching to his own drummer, you know. He's not trying to be yeah. anybody else. He doesn't want to make, uh, you know, how need a movie, okay? Uh, uh, or Tim Burton movies. He wants to make Adam Rifkin movies. That's good. And I think he's been successful doing it. You know, so his last picture with uh, Burt Reynolds, the last movie star. I mean, that's, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that he loved Burt Reynolds. And, and he did, it's, you know, as a kid, he loved, who didn't love Burt Reynolds? Yeah. <laughs> you not love Burt Reynolds. If you don't <laughs> love Burt Reynolds, I, you know, there's something wrong with you. You're not yeah. American. <laughs> In fact, you, you should probably go somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, Bert was, Bert was the key. Oh, Bert's kid, uh, Quentin, uh, was one of the editors on Dick Dixter. Oh, really? That's pretty cool. Well, yeah, sure. Cause I like all those connections to old Hollywood. And I was interested in talking to him about his dad. Of course, of course I didn't realize that he, he and his dad aren't, <laughs> weren't the closest. Oh, really? Yeah, oh yeah. No, Quentin was in the Lonnie Anderson camp. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he was he was sticking with mommy over there on Ventura Boulevard, <laughs> and there was you know Bert down in Florida. So uh, I had just finished reading Bert's last uh, autobiography, which is great. I didn't know that he was he knew May West and Betty Davis, and you know he was really a serious actor in the in the heyday of uh, you know New York acting, and that always interests me. Because that's where Peggy came from. She was Lee Strasberg's right hand. Marlon Brando and James Dean. That's who you know. Uh, that's who Peggy knew. Oh, that's wow. who Peggy talked. That's who Peggy talked about in the class was Marlon Brando and James Dean. So she has your attention. <laughs> you know, you're you're listening. <laughs> and then Lee Strasberg would say, you know, anybody that wants to watch an acting class, go watch Godfather Two. The scene between Al Pacino and Lee Strasberg in that is the you know Lee Strasberg was Al Pacino's acting coach. <laughs> so now here they are in Cuba, you know, in the mob, and that scene down that those scenes between those two is just well, it doesn't really get any better ever. Of course, we're talking about Godfather too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> It's hard to top like that. Godfather one and two are like the two best. So we talk a lot of movie sequels on the podcast on it that I do. And like Godfather two, it's, it's really hard to top a, a first film, but when a first film is yeah. that good and it can even yeah. be neck and neck with it, it's kind of phenomenal. It's, it's tough. Well, 
you know, by by layering the the past into it the way they did with the De Niro, uh, the early Corleone, yeah, that really that really uh, raised the ante and and really fleshed out fleshed it out because yeah. we saw yeah we saw you know who he really was. <laughs> I mean, he was he was a stone cold killer, so. <laughs> The old guy that Brando was playing was still a stone cold killer. It just, you know, the years, how they softened him. But there's a great story about Brando. They, you know, they didn't want him. The studio said, oh, no, no way. There's no way. In fact, they put out a whole bunch of conditions on him. He had to sign up. He he wasn't going to get paid. (laughs) He, you know, until after it was over. And then, I mean, there was, he had to put up a bond. I mean, there was crazy stuff. Wow. Why? No, that was well. It was difficult, and plus he he got seventeen percent of the gross. That was his his contract at the time. So you know, no, he he didn't you know he didn't need the work. He didn't want to work. He had this island in Tahiti. What was he doing? I mean, he you know. But what happened was Coppola went out to his house, and ostensibly under the guise that they were going to do a makeup and hair test. And what happened was that. Uh, he brought wine and uh, bread and olives, and suddenly uh, Brando morphed into, you know, Vito Corleone. And when Coppola took the test footage, that was 15 minutes, back to the studio, they were like, we got to have him. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, even Brando was auditioning for that. So, you know, it just goes to show you. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that. I, I never knew the story about all the conditions with that, but I know for Superman, maybe he learned from that one because for Superman, he's like barely in the movie. He made $3.7 million for, for that little role. 17% of the gross to get you that. Crazy. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's good, that's good money when you can get it. Oh, no, definitely. So at this time, like right after like Psycho Cop Returns, are you, are you writing? Is this when you're writing at A&E? Yeah, and and doing a lot of um, spec script writing as well. We were also shooting a lot of uh, short films. I think I I did four films for Playboy Channel. (laughs) Really? Yeah, but we were producing them and writing them. And, you know, my buddies were all directing them and I was starring in them. And I, you know, frankly, I didn't mind mauling that Playboy talent. (laughs) (laughs) Because those movies, the one thing is, you're not, nobody wants to see the guy, right? You're just there to to showcase the the woman. So, you know, so you can get away with it. Well, that's pretty cool. It's funny. On your IMDb, there's not a lot of this stuff. So it's pretty cool that that I'm talking to you. So what other spec scripts did you write? Did you write any other scripts that got made, but you just didn't get writing credits? Yes, but it, it not released. Oh, okay. So it wasn't until Dixter that I got the feature done. Oh, cool. But, you know, I, I wrote a TV pilot. I, I, I had a series where people wanted me to play John Wayne, which would have been, well, that would have been really great. Because <laughs> yes. I really, really liked the Duke. I mean, the greatest movie, American movie star of all time, really. 175 movies and only died twice. I mean, that's yeah. good. <laughs> Those are... Those are good. Do you know when you gotta ask, "Do I live?" You know that's the first question. Do I live? Do I, does this character live? 
Duke, Duke never had to worry about that. No, never. I think he's in the realm like him, Eastwood, Burt Reynolds. There's like just these actors that if people don't like them, there's something wrong with them. Yeah, well, I, I was a Mitchum. I love Robert Mitchum. Oh, yeah. Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin. Uh, like I said, Sam Shepard, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, Bronson. Dang, I mean, young guys are, are, are look like they're serious. I, I never understood why America felt like we had to go other places to you know, find leading men. You know, we, we've got all these English and Australian guys flopping around here. <laughs> Who needs them? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm a huge Charles Bronson fan, like, because we've been on this lockdown. I already watched, like, all the Death Wishes. uh watched The Mechanic the other night. <laughs> no one better than Charles Bronson. That's, I, I, I should have left him out. He's the best. I, I met him. Really? Uh, I, I used to, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I've been lucky. I've met everybody and, you know, worked with some good people, too. But, you know, seriously, famous people, you know, Dolly Parton. I made a, a, a commercial with Kenny Rogers. I mean, how much fun was that? That's awesome. The gambler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hanging out with Kenny Rogers was, you know, I mean, all you're doing is asking Kenny questions <laughs> all day. So what was that like when you discovered the Eagles? <laughs> you know, that must have been fun. You guys hanging out at the house of Sunset, huh? smoking dope. <laughs> <laughs> so then from there, after Psycho Cop, you played a cop a few different times, a sheriff, uh, and you were on a lot of different shows. And, man, so what was it like to be on such a hit show like The Office? Like, what was that process of landing that role as uh, a very famous, like, meme? Because people, if you look online, if I'm sure, I don't know if you Google your name or your character's name, but they mentioned that as if you go to, like, a, a family party of, like, your spouse's, and you go yeah. there, and that's how you do it. Bob Vance. Hi, Doug. Hi, I'm Doug. I'm married to so-and-so. Well, listen, getting that, at the time, it was just another TV show, right? Yeah, I definitely. mean, when I got it. Then, then it turned into a recurring role, and then I wanted it to be a bigger role. And, you know, so we had no way of knowing that the show was going to be bigger now that it's off the air. Yeah. I mean, who, who, could have, who could have foreseen that? <laughs> and no one. I mean, it's, 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 it's way bigger than it was when it was on. So the Vance Refrigeration, but Bob Vance is a cottage industry. I really don't even know if I had anything to do with it. <laughs> I guess I did. But, you know, there's shirts and hats and baby clothes and blankets <laughs> and socks and keychains. And, I, hell, I've had to buy every bit of it. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I've got the best collection in the world. But uh, it's funny because when when they first launched that um, that brand, they were really NBC really guarded that uh, copyright uh, and that trademark jealously. I mean, if somebody tried to put up something, you know, make T-shirts out of it, no, 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 they, they would take it down. But now they don't uh, supervise it at all. So there's pages and pages and pages of it. It's just that it's so crazy. Like you mentioned, when that show first came on, it was a bunch of people that everyone in the show, nobody was big. Everybody was no names. Usually some shows that become hits, they have at least one face. So you're like, I know that guy. But that show just had a lot of people that were on other things that maybe didn't work. But it's such a classic show. And you stuck around for what 25 episodes. That's amazing. 
I did 25, uh, actually 30, because five of them were double episodes. But I think we did 187 total. It's some of the greatest television ever done, frankly, and not just because I was privileged to be part of it, although looking, you know, a couple times on the set, I remember marveling, going, holy crap, look at this talent. I mean, when we were doing a rapid take scene, right, where everybody was chiming in, and it was just rapid fire. And I, I remember thinking, wow, this is great. Because like I said, it re- achieved a musicality in the comedy, in the rhythm of the comedy. Yeah. So everybody was serious about the work. You know, that makes all the difference. And of course, we had the collision of hungry actors and hungry writers. And so the, you got to have both of those things in TV. I mean, there's no, <laughs> if you don't have the writers, you it doesn't matter how pretty and uh, the show looks not going to make it no that's true and exactly like comedy shows the biggest thing is timing and just so many of the way the way it was written which i'm 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 hoping they did what you were saying earlier is did it by the script because man they just nailed the timing of so many jokes in that show like even early on that's what she said and there's just so many times that it's so good or even you wanting to always like knock michael's head off well, without saying as much, because people used to say, why doesn't Bob just beat Michael up? I'm like, well, it wouldn't be funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where do you go from there? I mean, yeah. there's nowhere to go from there. The threat of violence is always more comfortable than the actual violence. You know, that's just something that you learn from working on stage, right? You, you want to be really picky about, <laughs> about putting the audience through, you know, too much of it, right? That's oh, yeah. something that's, that's kind of uh, screwed up horror films now, you know, is that uh, they're not scary, they're, they're gory. I know, I hate that. There's a huge difference between scary and gory. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I did a movie, uh, of, well, hell, it's 10 years ago now, it's called Night Point, and it's a home invasion uh, robbery, right? And so... I play the the father in this and my family gets raped and murdered and killed. And I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's an hour and 90, an hour and 30 minutes of, uh, or 90 minutes of nonstop hell. But it just, nothing was scary. It was all about the blood, nothing but the blood, you know? And so, I mean, as an actor, it was a, you know, it was a rough experience to do it. I wasn't feeling that great after I did it, I must say. The funny thing, Doug, was I had to go film on a Friday, and then the next day, Saturday, I had to go shoot another film where I was playing a preacher, <laughs> a minister. In the, and, I, and so I'd just been brutalized for three weeks, you know, I mean, where yeah. people were getting raped and, and you know, getting a gut, uh, 38 shoved up my ass. I mean, all kinds of bad things are happening. <laughs> and... So now then I've got to go into this church. There's 200 people sitting there and they're waiting for me to give this sermon about love and, and faith and forgiveness. <laughs> uh, and I didn't, really, you know, I didn't really have a whole lot of time to prepare it. And there was just way too much copy. <laughs> so I was really struggling. You know, I mean, it was like, oh, how am I going to get through this? And uh, the director came up to me and he said, uh, are you, are you okay? And I was like, well, I just wrapped this horror film yesterday, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm afraid that I haven't recovered. 
But anyway, we we managed to uh, managed to get it out. But I think you said it perfect. I think it's too much gore now. I'm a huge Hitchcock fan, like a lot of people, and uh, he has this great little like two minute clip. It's on YouTube. I watch all the time for like writing or want to be inspired, and uh, it's so cool. He talks about like a group of people on a sitting around a table, and there's a bomb under the table just ticking and ticking, and he's like, uh-huh. seeing it explode wouldn't be as impactful or as suspenseful as not showing it and just maybe right. just the sound of it let your imagination i think that's now like the movies like hostile and uh like so many of them oh. it's just like i don't want to see a guy yeah. eating a guy's leg <laughs> yeah no i mean uh if someone were to make a clever scary movie like psycho cop 3 yes no, we're going to be going for, for the scare. Also, uh, Joe is in direct communications with Satan. You know, we, we, we had to bring him into the 2020. Of course. Yeah, he's got an iPhone. He's talking to Satan, okay? There, there's a direct line to Beelzebub. So <laughs> that just gives me a chance to really, you know, play with the book of Revelations. I don't know if you're familiar with that book from the Bible, but it's pretty spooky. <laughs> Man, that'll be so cool. I really hope that I'm hoping that especially the guy came up to you and said, we got to make it because that'd be so cool. You know, all these years later, I hadn't wanted to do it. You know, I thought, well, I'm done with it. I've already done it. What else am I going to do with it? Which is exactly what I said to Steve Carell when he left the show. I said, hell, you've already done it. What else can you do with it? Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you're just repeating yourself. Right. I mean, it just becomes the same thing over and over. I mean, Michael wasn't going to change. You can't change him. He has to stay the same. He has to stay 12 years old. He's essentially a 12-year-old dude, right? Yeah. He, has to, he has to stay 12 years old to, to stay funny. If he suddenly becomes 18 or, you know, a 31-year-old adult or 45-year-old adult, he's not going to be funny. Yeah. So, he, you know, Steve Carell knows comedy. He knows it was time to go. Also, you know, they didn't necessarily want to pay his price. And, you know, that's what happens when it shows a hit. So somehow we managed to slog through those last two years, but it wasn't the same after he left. No, I know when you have something, somebody that big, but yeah, no, he put it in his dues, man. Like watching too funny to fail on Hulu with him on the Dana Carvey show. And you just see all these things that he was in and he was like this close from it happening. And then, you know, that show came along and changed his life. Well, he's, uh, he's also chosen wisely you know, uh, that really becomes the key thing for uh, actors who are That's on true. the age track, right? Tom Cruise always chose wisely. You know, the other guys that were his competitors at that time, Sean Penn, uh, Timmy Hutton, you know, that whole era of guys. There was 20 guys in the crowd, but only one or two of them emerged. Yeah, no, it's true. Right? Not everybody gets to stay up at the top of the uh, of the of the ride you know the, the roller coaster goes up and down so choosing the material you know you can you can end it pretty quick with bad choices no that's true i interviewed a guy it's funny you're the third person that i've uh interviewed that was in uh stiletto i've interviewed r.a mihailoff who was in that knife point movie and yeah db sweeney i talked to a couple weeks ago yeah he Similar thing you just said. So he was at a point in his career that he was, he was like, it was amazing. Like he, he was like, I, I was basically just 
I didn't have to audition. They were offering movies. So he had that love movie that came out, that hockey player love movie. I can't yeah. remember the name. But he had either that, they were going to give it to him, or uh, Mighty Ducks, the head coach. And he goes, you know, looking back, obviously the other one's more popular, but he's like, you know what? I never did a rom-com before, so I wanted to do that. But you're right. It's like there's so many times you have like open door A or B, and you never know what's going to happen until it happens. The Cutting Edge. Cutting Edge, yeah, yeah. Cool movie. I love that movie. I, I, other than, I mean, we worked obviously on Stiletto, but we, I also, DB and I did a little, uh, he wanted to do, um, he did a little pilot and I went out and played a part in that for him. Oh, you know, he's a great, he's a, he, he's a damn good actor and RA, RA is, you know, RA. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's truly a presence. And, uh, you know, I just kid behind him the whole time we were on Stiletto. <laughs> well, Stiletto was written by Nick Malalonga. I know. Yeah. Just won the Academy Award for Green Book. Unbelievable, right? And he produced it. No, well, the minute I read the script, I, the, the email I sent back to him said, "Hey, Nick, just finish the script, prepare your Oscar speech." Oh, that's awesome! And he sent it to you, or are you just for audition wise, or? Well, no, he sent it to me. I I did audition for it. I did not, unfortunately, get. Although probably one of the best auditions I've ever done. Oh yeah. 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 But, uh, I did not get hired on that. They did a local hire on the part that I was up for. And, uh, I don't do local hires. Oh, what's that mean? What's local hire? Is that just like a local casting agent? They, well, they shot it down in Louisiana. So they hired screen actors, guild talent from Louisiana. Oh, okay. So they don't have to fly you there, put you up in a hotel for a week, give you per diems. And then, you know, it's, it's way more expensive to have me come in and do a week than to have hire somebody down there. Yeah. When I talked to DB, he actually just released a little like short film that he did a comedy with him and Sean Astin because him and Sean Astin worked in the nineties together. And he said, he said he, when he ran into him in the airport, like a couple of years ago, he's like, I'm going to write something for us to do. And they just did it. I saw something on Facebook uh, about it. Uh, something about Irishman, right? Yeah, it's called Two Dumb Mix. It's actually pretty funny. It's in like the he wanted to do in, in the vein of like the old like Charlie Chaplin kind of thing. So it's really like these two alcoholic guys. But yeah, it's like four minutes long, but it's really cool. It's really funny. Well, they you know he's looking to raise the money. Yeah. So I mean, have money, we'll film. I mean, I I made Dixter. I shot Dixter in six days. Wow. Uh, my budget. What What do you think my budget on Dixter is? Now that you said it was six days, now I have a little bit of an easier guess. I'm going to say 40 grand. No, the total film. Well, that's actually about correct for the shooting budget. Total, total budget, $75,000. I made huh. it for 75 grand. So for 75 grand, you made that. Wow. I did. But again, I called in every favor I knew I had. <laughs> it, the movie was directed by my cousin Chris Ray, oh, who's cool. becoming a pretty accomplished horror director. It, the crew was the uh, what's the name of that schlock outfit over there? <laughs> the, not not Troma. The, the, the they do all the mockbusters. No, I'm trying to think. I, I know. Anyway, that crew was from that outfit. And so the, 
they're fast. It's not, it wasn't. Also, we were on sound stages, right? Yeah. So everything's pre-lit. Everything's pre-dressed. I was doing 15-page days and rapping early. Oh, wow. Yeah. The actors were so good. I mean, listen, if you've got Tim Russ and Tim Abel and Richard Grieco cranking it out, you are in business. Was Richard Grieco one of your favorites? Well, he's a good guy. I mean, he was only there. I mean, you know, that was the advantage of shooting green screen. Yeah, from talking yeah. Head, is that they could pop in. We would shoot it when they got there. And then when they left, we would get back to our uh, uh, other scenes. Yeah. I mean, really, the, the logistics of, of the shooting is the most important part. Obviously, aside from structuring the screenplay so that it can be a full narrative, beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> You know, with with nobody. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think it's really cool. Calvin Tenor from The Office is in it too. Yes, he is. The 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 key thing, what a part he played. I mean, he was he has never played that part again. Ever. Yeah. Ever. Tell me when he's gonna play the gay wardrobe assistant. <laughs> I you know <laughs> talk about typecasting. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we sort of just sprung that on those guys, you know, right at the end. They were like, ah, we want to flame these guys up a little bit. You know, Dick is obviously drunk the whole movie. That's the way you soften him, you know, is yeah. that uh, is a drunk is not, we don't hold them as responsible for mean language. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, Dick doesn't say faggot. He says cocksucker, you know. <laughs> It's milder. <laughs> yeah. And he pisses on the script. It, it's really a love story. You can tell, you can tell by me talking about it. But the thing that I wanted to do, Doug, was I, you know, if you think of it as in comedy, there's a solid comedy, farce comedy, French yeah. farce. And so I studied Moliere and Fado and these French farces, you know, Noises Off was the big Amer uh, English version of a, a French farce. Doors are always opening. People are coming and going. You know, it's fast, 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 fast. So that's what I wanted to do was make a mockumentary at farce pace. If you think of uh, comic pace, remember record players? Yeah. There was 33, 45, and 78, right? Well, Christopher Guest makes movies at 33. The Office is at 45. And Dick Dixter's at 78. <laughs> This is nonstop. It's nonstop. And even though we are limited by the, by the set, and there's so much going on, there's so much action, and there's three cameras, which keeps the cameras moving at all times. So, you know, it looks a lot busier than it really is. That's cool that you're able to make that, man. That's really awesome. So, so one thing I always love to ask people, and I know we didn't really touch on, you know, because you wanted to do acting pretty young, but was there anything else that you wanted to do besides that? Any other career path that you had in mind? I was modeling. I proved to be too tall for that. Six five is too tall. It's pretty uh, tall. Well, well, models. They you go in there and you fit the clothes. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> they don't make the clothes fit me. You know, they go wait. <laughs> we need extra, extra long. You know, no, no, no. So. Uh, like I said, I, I was in, I was in that world, so I was working with still cameras, which was helpful. 
you know, learning how to work with still cameras really was a, a foundation. And it's still one of the most critical aspects of being an actor is shooting, you know, great still photographs. Oh, yeah. That people look at and go, let's hire this guy. Let's bring this guy in and have him read. He looks interesting. So it always comes down to taking those pictures, and that's where, you, you know, you have to learn how to do that. That's right. What kind of modeling were you doing? Just, like, print modeling fashion. for, like, ads? Fashion? Wow. Yeah. You're, like, towering over everybody else. 6'5". Everybody else is short. <laughs> well, 6'1", six, 6'2", six, most of those guys are. Man, dude, this has been awesome. What What's one film? Obviously, Dick Dixter. I'll put the link in the notes to the, to the Prime so folks yeah, can check yeah. that out. But was there anybody, any other movie throughout your career or show you're on that you're like, man, this is so good, but maybe just people just didn't have that release or got out there the way it should have? Well, many of them. I mean, you, sure. you, have, you have higher expectations for things. You know, I was recently cut out of a film the first time that's ever happened. Really? And uh, that was devastating. I was, <laughs> I was furious, but you know, I had to learn, I had to let it go. I mean, um, I was, I, I did some amazing work in Zach Gallison acting between two firms and movies. I played his dad. No way. Yeah. And uh, I don't know why, I mean, I shot a week. I mean, they wrote extra scenes. I was feeling on top of the world about that part. And actually, then somebody went to see it and they said, well, you're not in it. <laughs> oh, they didn't even tell you? No, no, no. And then somebody said, well, you need to find out. I'm like, no way would I give anybody the satisfaction. You know, I mean, if you're not in, you're not in. But, uh, but the work I did was great. So, and, you know, those are the things that I, I mean, there's certain actors or certain films or certain parts that are measuring sticks, you know, about your um, evolution. You know, acting is like golf. You never are perfect. You never have a perfect round ever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just not even the best ones. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, one of the great ones, Ben Hogan, the Hawk, said that he, you only hit five perfect shots in a round. And this is a guy who's out, you know, tooling around shooting 66. (laughs) But he was only happy with five of them. So, you know, again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Doug, you know, perfection, precision, those things have to be, have to be. Otherwise, what's the point? No, of course, you got to strive for it at least because – at least if you miss, you know, you're, you're close to where you want to be, but if you shoot low, you're going to, you're not going to be anywhere close. That's what I tell actors about training. I mean, sure. You might be making something and laughing it up with flavor Flav, <laughs> And then next thing you know, Anthony Hopkins is standing there. <laughs> and you know, if you don't have the game, well, it's funny, a friend of mine worked with Anthony Hopkins on uh, Surviving Picasso, where he's playing Picasso, which was one of the most complicated guys ever. And this actress, um, Diana Venora, she's a method actress from New York. She played Al Pacino's wife in Heat. If you remember oh, okay, scene. yeah. Yeah, she was brilliant in that. But anyway, she was playing one of his wives in Surviving Picasso, and she was working herself into a method frenzy, you know, pacing around on the set and 
Hopkins is just sitting there watching her. <laughs> and he calls her over and he says, Diane, what's happening? And she says, well, you know, I'm thinking about the lines and I'm thinking I'm going to just do this. And he just looks at me and goes, Diana, sometimes the lines just need to be said. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that's too good. That is awesome, man. Uh, one more acting story. Yeah, definitely. Marlon Brando and Sam Shepard. So, you know, directors, Marlon Brando really tortured directors. You know, they weren't used to this guy. I mean, he, he you know, marched to his own drummer. So he looked at Sam Shepard and he said, Sam, just because they say action doesn't mean you got to do anything. <laughs> That is so, but it's so wise, you know, when you think about it. Like when I was working with Zach, I mean, I always just delayed. I just delayed. I didn't, I was in no hurry to do anything. Yeah. Why? You know, just wait. Because in improv, if you wait, you know, people are going to hang themselves. I mean, it's just a matter of, of seconds, really. Yeah. <laughs> it always happens. Uh, so, but it's interesting, you know, if you if you take some of that. I, you know, obviously, you know, by talking to me that I'm a huge believer in studying and theater and reading and learning your craft. And, you know, yeah. I see a lot of that. I see a lot of that missing. You know, I was working with this uh, TV heartthrob. We were making a movie called Friended to Death, which I wish that would have done better because, you know, it was so topical with, uh, you know, it's a Facebook deal. So I said to this actor, so have you done any theater? And he looked at me like I was, like I was crazy. <laughs> oh, hell no. No, hell no. Are you kidding? No way would I do that. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> but you call yourself an actor, but you wouldn't do theater? What? Yeah, that's how all those people would start. Like in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was like New York City, like William Sadler, you know. Uh, oh, all those guys started there. William Stadler, I like him. He's he, he's underrated. Oh, he's awesome. I was lucky enough to interview him last year. And, I, dude, it was very cool because he was so down to earth. He was like one of those guys that didn't know, like, who he was, which is even cooler, I guess. Yeah. But, no, so one thing you mentioned before, you were talking about uh, Marlon Brando and Sham, Sam Shepard. So I, I interview uh, actor Larry Hankin every week. I'm helping him put together like a, possibly like a one-man play that he's going to do out in L.A. I know who he is. I know who he is. He's a great guy. It's been I talked to him every Saturday for like the last four months. But anyway, so he told me a cool story about uh, James Garner. He was uh, in an episode of The Rockford Files, and yeah. they were in the middle of a scene and James Garner didn't like the way the scene was. So instead of like finishing it, he like walked, he just walked off camera and he, Larry asked him afterwards, like, why would you do that? He goes, cause if you finish the scene, then they can use that. They're not gonna, they're not gonna do what's good for you. So what you have to do is just walk right off camera so they can't use that take. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> I met Marlon Brando. Really? I, uh, yeah, I went up and introduced myself to him, to him, and I talked to him for about 10 minutes. He was really cool. You know, we were talking the actor talk. 
Did you have anything in mind when, like, when you saw him? Because I'm sure a lot of the people you grow up admiring, it's like when you see him in public, you're like, like I ran into John Starks at the Garden. I'm a big Nick fan, and I was a kid, and I'm like, man, you know, my whole life growing up watching this guy, I was like 25 at the time, and I had nothing to say. But did you have anything at least ready? Like, oh yeah, oh yeah. No, well, what I had just read his biography, uh, his autobiography. Uh, so I, you know. And I had just did a, a movie, and I had borrowed from his autobiography to shoot this movie. So I told him about that, and it was funny because he looked at me and he goes, "Well, I didn't actually write the book, buddy." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, but they're they're your stories, Mister Brando. They're your stories." That must have been such a trip, especially how much you liked him and meet him and be able to pick his brain for even 10 minutes. Well, I met Shepard. I met Shepard one night. I was bartending at, at, on Sunset Strip and he came into the bar and it was a, you know, it was a place where rich producers went to meet young models, really. And he was looking around <laughs> and of course I had already, you know, bought him a beer. I mean, he, there, there was nobody changing hands out of that pocket. He looks at me and he goes, what kind of place is this? And I go, well, you know, it gets a little dangerous. And he looks at me and goes, dangerous is a loaded 45. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm doing tough guy dialogue with Sam Shepard. Hello, tough guy dialogue over here. <laughs> so that's what you were doing, like when you first got out there to Hollywood, you were bartending? Well, yeah, I mean, I worked in restaurants and you know, sold, uh, brokered, uh, oil rigs and, and did all kinds of silly stuff. Yeah. You got to do essentially that you love what you're, you're doing. So in the beginning, you got to make sure, you know, you have to keep a roof over your head. You have to eat yeah. and you have to, every cent that you make has to go into the business. The business is me, the product. So, yeah. you know, it's classes and it's wardrobe and it's pictures and it's, you know, little films it's all the things that you know <laughs> it's uh full on full of business sometimes the product isn't that good you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> oh man that, that's that's awesome well no hey this has been awesome thank you for taking the time i hope psycho cop three i want that to happen oh, yeah. because that'd be oh it's happening so cool and you're so passionate about it that's it's pretty cool well it'll be it'll be good i'm gonna I'm going to really scare people with it. Nice. (laughs) Thanks for letting me pick your brain for an hour. All right, pal. Man, Rob was awesome. I love talking to him. I could have listened to all those stories all day long because most of the time people only wanted to do an hour, which I was fine with. That was awesome. But when they wanted to keep going, when he's like, one more Hollywood story, I'm like, yes, please. I wish I could have just said, keep going. I got all day. (laughs) So... Man, so so many things from that. I would love to see the deleted footage of his role as Zach Galifianakis' dad in Between Two Ferns. But I loved his talk about Marlon Brando and The Godfather. He loves the history of film, which that's what I love. That's why me and Jamie started this podcast, because we love the idea of filmmaking. And that's why we love to talk to people behind it. And the fact that he's going to do a Psycho Cop 3, he started rapping for me. And the fact that he was the reason he showed up in a cop outfit 
to get the first Psycho Cop made. Brilliant. Thank you, Rob, if you're listening. And now your homework, which is amazing homework. Because this movie's so hard to find, it's actually free on YouTube. You can watch the first Psycho Cop and Psycho Cop Returns, which has, you know, legendary actress Julie Strain in it. So find it on YouTube. I'll put the link in the notes as well. And don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, follow us on all social media at Sequels Only, and don't forget to check out our website, SequelsOnly.com. Good night. <laughs>